0: So uh, greetings everyone, um, my name is Tanisra and I welcome you to our conversation, Mindfulness in the Dharma and Climate Action. I'm ho- I'll be hosting this conversation today and through the coming months and I'm doing this on behalf of One Earth Sangha, the Buddhist teachers for climate action and our sponsor Maestro Conference. So again, really warm welcome to each and every one of you that have called in today to join this really important conversation that we're having together. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to suggest that it's taken quite a lot of work to get to this point for the team in the background, and also for each of you as you enter into the reality of what we're engaging, the tremendous challenge that we're facing now to ensure a sustainable future for the generations that come after us. So what I'd like to suggest is that we begin by just taking a deep breath and really feeling as we take that breath, just feeling the breath in your body, feel your body, feel the connection to the earth beneath you with your feet on the ground and the pressure of sitting on your seat and just connect with that sensation. Just take a deep breath and arrive here. Let's arrive here into our body, into this space, into our presence, and into this conversation together. And breathe out, breathing out, and just trusting the flow and the process that we're gonna be engaging. So today marks the start of Earth Care Week, and uh, this is a really great way to begin. Um, We have 1,500 people and more signed up into this conversation. So there's a huge response from the Dharma and Mindfulness community. I really appreciate that. And just before we begin, I'm just interested to know how many of you have been involved in the People's Climate March, which just happened in New York and across the globe recently? Uh, this last couple of weeks and all the events that were involved, engaged with that. If you were involved in that or aware of that, just press one on your dial pad. So we can get a sense of. Uh... That's great. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, this was a huge event, and I think what happened during that time is we became aware of ourselves as a like a global tribe a huge uh, collective of uh, people gathered across all diversities, all representing all kinds of uh, concerns. And uh, I think this really marks uh, a a turning point in the climate movement. And I think our conversations that we'll be having together are to place our particular unique um, contribution as Dharma practitioners. So to continue, I'd like to first of all just very briefly introduce our team that are, are doing the back backup for our talks. Um, and they will be speaking and helping out a bit later in the call. There's, uh, Lou Leonard is uh, involved in and co-founder of One Earth Sangha. And Kristen Barco is also co-founder of One Earth Sangha, both uh, resident in Washington, D.C., and Yong A oh, resident in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who's also been very involved in helping us with the IT. So today, the theme of our discussion, we're very, very grateful and very appreciative to have three fantastic and accomplished and experienced Dharma teachers to help guide our conversation. The theme is, what is the authentic... Attitude or understanding that moves us towards real and authentic transformation in our times. So the presenters will reflect together on the qualities of heart and mind that enable us to face the suffering of the earth and how we can begin to respond wisely to this. So our teachers that we have that will be leading our conversation this morning will begin with Tara Brock and then Ruth King and Jack Kornfield. And each of those, many of you, if not all of you, will be very familiar with. You can also check the more detailed biography on the One Earth Sangha website. But um, I'm going to hand over to Lou Leonard from One Earth Sangha now to just introduce a little bit of himself. He's been supporting us with the science, and we'll be engaging the conversation uh, in that way. But Lou, if you're there, please uh, to um, introduce yourself and then take us into the conversation with, the, the, with Tara, who will be leading us um, into this uh, focus. Thank you, Lou.
1: Thank you, Tanisra, and hello everyone. On behalf of Kristen Barker, uh, my, the amazing co-founder of Onur Sangha, I work with on this project, welcome to this first climate conversation. Uh, Sangha is an online community of thousands of mindfulness practitioners, and we're also a network of Sanghas staying connected and learning from each other about the Dharma and climate change. We're so excited to kick off the series today and, and really so grateful to all of you for sharing part of your Sundays with us over the next five weeks. You all received a background paper last week uh, created by uh, Kriti Kanko, a senior scientist from Environmental Defense Fund and me. Uh, if you didn't get the paper, uh, let us know and we'll send it uh, to you. Don't think of this as an authoritative uh, treatise. Uh, we couldn't do that in 10 pages and that's not um, necessary for this for this class, but it's just intended as a common starting point uh, for all of us. And I'm not going to run through the uh, the 10 pages of the paper, but because the science can be a barrier for some, I thought I'd offer my favorite uh, 10 words that summarize uh, where we are now on on climate. And those are, things are getting worse and worse, and better and better, faster and faster. Almost seems like a climate Cohen. Um, So for example, on the one hand, the, the Arctic, is uh, collapsing before our eyes, and it's doing so at breathtaking speed. There's growing evidence that this warming of the Arctic is also causing uh, larger impacts to our planet. It's causing the jet stream to wobble, which is uh, helping to create things like the polar vortex, the California drought, and the path of storms like Sandy. On the other hand, for the first six months of this year, first six months of 2014, 70% of new US electric generation capacity came from wind and solar, 70%. And just two weeks ago, China announced that it's developing a plan to cap its carbon pollution. So if you read nothing else in the background paper, look at the graph on the bottom of page four. It shows that the key fork in the road for us on this challenge is still ahead, not behind, we don't know how this movie is going to turn out, and what we do matters. In my, uh, in my day job, I lead the climate change program at World Wildlife Fund, and on many days, the enormousness of this challenge makes, makes me feel small and inadequate, and, and, and most difficultly, it, it makes me feel alone a lot. But the best cure that I've found for managing these feelings is what we're doing today, and that's sangha. So thank you so much for being here and helping to create this Sangha over the next five weeks. We're going to have a Q&A period later in this call where you can raise your hand, you can virtually raise your hand um, as Tanisra already, already demonstrated. Um, and you can also submit questions during the course of this uh, conversation to the email address questions at oneearthsangha.org. Uh, and we can take those and filter those into the conversation Also just want to let you know that this class is going to be recorded and it will be available afterwards. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome the first of our teachers, Tara Brock. Tara needs no introduction or at least not one that I'm qualified to give. Um, She's simply one of the wisest hearts of our time and I'm grateful to say that she's also the leader of the Insight Meditation community of Washington uh, where I practice here in Washington, D.C. Tara, we're so grateful to have you.
2: Thank you so much, Lou, and thank you for your powerful words. I'm I'm just sitting, resonating with what you said about feeling alone and about sangha, because everything that is better and better is coming out of some feeling of us all together, our connection, our consciousness. So I'm just sensing in that in that spirit for us to pause again and. Um, I gather in the last hour, instead of 1,500, we're more like 1,700 and counting. And just to, as you feel yourself right here, just feel your body, liveness, whatever state of heart is here right now. And to widen your attention to sense all of us here that we really are creating a field of attention and a field of caring. And maybe just as many times as you can remember to pause and keep feeling into that, because that's where change arises from. You know, when we go to that basic inquiry about, you know, how did it happen? Like, what really, how did this predicament unfold, this enlarged body, our living earth in such a state of dis-ease, most spiritual traditions will describe the suffering that comes from feeling separate, that, that it's the original suffering, that there's a self in here and a world out there. And out of that separateness, you know, there's a, a phrase I love, that the primal mood of the separate self is fear, that these energies of grasping and fear lead us to violating ourselves, each other, and this earth. It's like if something's out there, uh, I, I think of the term unreal other, that it becomes unreal. It's like another person or a racial group or a species or the natural world is other. And then we can violate it. It doesn't have um, you know, the same heart or vulnerability or subjective reality that we have. So one of the frames that I find really useful from an evolutionary perspective is the sense that, you know, originally there's that fused kind of part of everything consciousness, the primordial mood, and then we emerge into our egoic state, which most of humanity's in, where there is a sense of unreal other. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of moments of the day, it feels like that. And we're waking up, and this is the third, in a simplistic way, the third emerging to this this realization of interdependence where we uh, belong to the web. And that's where the better and better is coming from. It's from that consciousness. But humanity has been this, in this prolonged um, kind of arrested place of development in terms of egoic consciousness. And sometimes I think about the consciousness of manifest destiny. And many most of you are familiar with Like in the 1800s, this emerge, this sense of, entitlement to vanquish and to destroy anything what's indigenous unreal others and it's still operating i mean manifest destiny is like that consciousness that in the those that are in power have the right or entitlement to dominate and to oppress other you know others of other races of other sexual orientations ethnicities and the devastation of our earth is no different it's this Egoic separation that thinks the earth's ours to plunder and violate. Most of you listening are probably, like myself, have a deep uh, love and admiration for Joanna Macy, who's one of the kind of pioneers in caring and acting on behalf of the earth. And she says we've been treating earth as if it's a supply source and sewer, extracting resources, pouring waste into it over and over and, and it's described now again. I'm, many of you know this: is that we're in this, the sixth grade extinction. You know, worse than when the dinosaurs all disappeared. That there's a trauma to all systems, and that it's estimated that half of all plants and animals and bird species will die off before 2100. That 75 percent of mammals in the next 334 years. So, you know, there's. I, I went a lot when I was younger to the Museum of Natural History in New York, and and they have an amazing exhibit there on on climate change and so on. And one scientist writes that this should keep you awake at night. And then, so what most of us are wondering is, how come it doesn't? You know, what what stops us from recognizing what seems to be right in front of us? And... You know, if we look at it and really are are very real in our own lives and those around us, um, we're preoccupied with what feels more personal and immediate. We get moved by what's emotional to us and in a personal, egoic way. And if we look around the world, anybody that's really hungry, anybody that's in the midst of war, struggling with poverty, with their own health, anybody that's in a major relational crisis – What's immediate is, is going to, in some way, distract from what's happening. And then, of course, for many of us, where we sense what's happening, it's it's too upsetting to think about. But I think one of the biggest things is that is the feeling, and, and Lou pointed to it, when we sense that we're alone, that there's nothing we can do to make a difference. And I want to speak to that because that's only, in some way, Closed down or cut off, and stop listening and looking and attending, and and that's where the great suffering is. It's like we become like lobsters in this heating pot, where it's it's gradual. We're not registering it day to day. The crisis. You know, I, I'm thinking of one of the phrases from Rumi that most has for me captured this predicament, which is which goes like this. He writes, Sit, be still, and listen, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. Sit, be still, and listen, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. And this is what most spiritual traditions point to, that we're in some way, we're drunk, we're in a trance, we're asleep. This is the arrested in the egoic stage, you know, we're, we're not seeing. And so the deep inquiry is, well, what, what wakes us up? And um, one of the things I thought I'd share with you is a legend from uh, the Knights of the Round Table that always really impacted me. And in this one, there's, you know, this is a knight seeking the Holy Grail. And Parsifal, their young knight, stops in a kingdom that's been turned into a wasteland. So people are wandering around as if business as usual. You know, they're, they're not really noticing. And he goes to see the king in the castle, and he's lying prone. He's mortally wounded. And Parsifal sees that, and he leaves. It's kind of like it's not my business, or what can I do? And it's rude to interfere. He's uncomfortable about the situation, so he just leaves. And then he's confronted on the road by a witch named Kundry, who's enraged that he didn't bother to even reach out to the king. So he returns, more thoughtful, more present, and kneels by the king's bed, and with real deep kindness, he says, what alithee. And in that moment, the king's cheeks get their normal flush of color, and he stands up, and outside the kingdom's awakened from the trance, and you know there's flowers and grass, and everything's alive again. Well, this is a story of a wasteland, and we're, growing, we're a growing wasteland. There's a trance that we're in. And the first step, and the reason I love this legend, the first step is to just start right where we are and offer our presence so that we're paying attention. What's going on inside this heart and body? What's going on in my larger body, the earth? Sit, be still, and listen. To feel into what's happening. Again, Joanna Macy says, you don't have to be optimistic. She says, trying to be hopeful can wear you out. Just be present. So what, what we find in starting where we are in that presence is that whatever we're really paying attention to, we fall in love with. Like for me, I, I go out every day. I spend a lot of time outside and I pay attention To the trees and the river I live near and I'm totally in love with it when I'm in nature it dissolves that sense of self-other and then if I see trash on the trail it hurts like it feels bad and I pick it up so there's this presence with this life being in this world and this living web and then there's compassion for the devastation so we start attending to the clear cutting and it feels like our bodies are involved because they are are the loss of the coral reefs, and the sea's dying, and it it's us are the cruelty to animals that's due to human consuming? I mean they're part of us, so we care, we respond. so I guess I'm saying this as i as I begin to wrap up here, because it feels to me that we'll only respond people will only wake up and respond to the pain of this earth if they're in love with this earth, in love with life. The choice to act has to come from the human heart, and that unleashes our intelligence, and we can respond wisely because we love. I heard that Ralph Waldo Emerson once asked what we would do if the stars only came out once every thousand years. And here's what he says. He says, no one would sleep that night, of course, the world would become religious overnight. We would be ecstatic, delirious, made rapturous by the glory of God. Instead, this is me speaking, the stars come out every night and we watch television. Now, I'm very struck by uh, the fact that in the United States we spend on an average 90% of our time indoors. How do you fall in love with the Earth? What's going to happen to our kids in terms of loving the Earth? We Americans spend 11 hours per day with digital media. How can we love the Earth if we're online all the time? D. H. Lawrence says, and this is you know 150 years ago or whatever, we're bleeding at the roots because we are cut off from the Earth and the Sun and the stars. So so the response to this trance is to come into presence, to reconnect with our bodies, with this with this earth body, to get that we are this living earth, to really get that. Cosmologist Mm -hmm. Brian Swim says four and a half billion years ago the earth was a flaming molten ball of rock and now it can sing opera. It can care. It can self-heal through these awakening hearts, those of us sitting right here. So we need to belong to our world, love our world, less in a cyber world, more real. And the last thing, and this is back to what Lou said, in waking up out of the unreal other and being connected, is we have to act collectively, do it together. It really doesn't work to respond to the suffering of Earth as a separate self. I know for myself, being involved with Teachers Collaborative, being involved locally with Lou and Kristen, it's just part of something larger. It's not a self-acting. It's just belonging.
0: Oh, yes, it's wonderful to, to be reminded of that togetherness. I think that's so true. Thank you so much, Tara. That's, that's a wonderful way to enter into our conversation. It's very, very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I'd like to um, invite Ruth. Uh, thank you so much, Ruth, for joining us this morning, um, and really uh, look forward to to your to your words as well. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome everyone.
3: It's exciting to be on on the call with all of you, and it did my heart uh, just wonders to. Um, to see the march and to see the unifying power that can happen when uh, we recognize a need and step and step and step into it—it's no small task at all. The, the, I had to um, get myself educated a bit about climate change in order to really step into. Uh, A deeper understanding. I kept feeling the pull at my heart, but it was almost in conflict with so many other pulls that I find in my life, in my family, Uh, so many other systemic pulls that um, that you know can can get my attention, like so many family members that are in the prison system and so on. So. I got myself educated by checking with One Earth Sangha and uh, really delving into Naomi Klein's book on the shock doctrine and also um, uh, her latest book that's out. And it really was helpful. And one of the things that I realized is that the, the climate disasters, as I see it, have they're they're teaching us about the illusion of boundaries it's it's teaching us about our utter interdependence our relatedness and our reliance on each other i remember the time when aids was a was a was an african issue and now it's something that that spread you know because these things are elemental we're we're looking at ebola we're looking at a lot of things that are Um, not going to be defined by some territorial boundary. So the the notion of territory through climate change is calling the question for us to examine the structures that we um, are conditioned in and to look at a realignment in this very important area. Our, Our life depends on this necessary attending. And one of the things I recognize as I was getting myself a bit more educated around climate change and the other pulls of heart in our um, uh, humanity here is that there's, there's actually a template. There's a, there's a template of greed at the systemic level that we can begin to recognize a constellation almost, a skeletal shape of um, exploitation, oppression, that, that has a systemic quality. We can't always see these things at the individual level. So we almost have to kind of back up and open the lens out of our kind of special interest groups or silos and see that there is a dynamic a power dynamic actually at play that has been at play uh, that's in our society. And, and it's kind of like a, 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 a looking at the relationship between capitalism and culture and looking at the dynamics between dominance and subordinate relationships at the systemic level. The planet Gaia, the Great Mother, has been and continues to be exploited just as poor people, First Nations and other indigenous cultures, uh, people of color throughout the world and for centuries. This is just to name a few. So it, 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 it's important to see that, 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 that the issues that are happening to the climate and to our planet fits into this same template. And poor people and people of color are ongoingly and disproportionately and systematically disenfranchised by these climate disasters throughout the world. The NAACP Climate Justice Initiative had published a statistic that said 68% of African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant the zone of maximum exposure to pollutants and cause of an array of a lot of, of ailments from heart disease, which I had as a child, and birth defects. So communities of color breathe in nearly 40% more pollutants than white people, classically, in, in our country. So choices are made about where and how things happen as we look at these systems. And there are consequences to this kind of greed seeding that has happened over time, and they're gross and subtle in their expression. Some of those consequences we can see as separation in our humanness, in our relatedness, denial, hatred, rebellion, and wars. And people of color and poor people and the planet are all rebelling for balance. So I think this is a critical piece for us to look at not just the special interest of climate change, even though I think it's crucial at this time, but to also see that it actually is a reflection of a dance that's been going on for some time very difficult for me to see climate change without also seeing these other issues. And this is not a call to kind of point out and create division. It's a call to recognize the divisions that exist among us. And this is not about placing anger or pointing fingers, but it's about seeing clearly and um, being willing to uh, not have our focus so narrow that other people, other situations are left out. I'm mostly concerned with how our hearts are divided, and I think climate change is, is, is changing us, and it's forcing us to see the delusion of, of the boundaries that we have. Martin Luther King, Jr. said it well from a letter from the Birmingham jail that he was in. And you all know this one. We're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And Shirley Chisholm, some of you may remember that this was the first African-American congresswoman back in 1968 and the first black candidate for the U.S. presidency. She said that service, is the rent we pay for the privilege of living on this planet. It is the very purpose of life, and that's something you do in your spare time. So, you know, one of the beautiful things about what we can start to look at in terms of what we do next is to to most fundamentally maintain our practice, which I think allows us to Uh, know deeply. I mean, the Buddha specialized in suffering and the end of suffering. So we have many tools that can support our awareness and deepen our presence so that we can act wisely and respond well to what's happening in, in the world. And, it, and and also, the, we, comfort and discomfort can keep us apart or it can bring us together. And I see mm-hmm. climate change as a call to this coming together. Mm-hmm. So Martin Luther King, again, we can learn from these people from our past, says that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. So I'd just like to say that we are the environment, and um, what we do next uh, is important for both um, presence and love.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much Ruth, thank you. Very powerful words and powerful to be reminded of uh, Martin Luther King and his uh, struggle to such a great example and of the disproportionate impact on marginalized and and oppressed communities uh, historically through the arc of colonialism and the abuse of of those peoples and the earth. Uh, Thank you so much uh, Ruth, so um, Jack, uh, welcome to Jack who has uh, just uh, been so amazing in contributing to the, the implanting of the Dharma in, in our Western world. Jack, welcome.
4: Thank you, Tanisha. I'm so moved and touched by the words of Ruth and Tara and the rest of you and, and the spirit of so many on this call. Um, it's as if our our own children are sick and our grandchildren and we're at the bedside or the earth, you know, as we talk about um, a kind of illness and we're gathered around and now we're coming together to say, what can we do? How can we respond? Um, And what I'd like to, to speak on and add to the conversation is sustaining ourselves in this difficult time. And it's an age old question um, born into the human realm, how do we sustain our good heart um, even though there is Dukkha? And the first noble truth of the Buddha, birth is Dukkha, aging is Dukkha, sickness is Dukkha, death is Dukkha, whether you translate it as sorrow or suffering or un, you know, insecurity, um, lamentation, pain, distress despair and we're feeling all that this is the words of the buddha dukkha is distress and despair encountering with what is encounters with what is difficult and painful which we're experiencing is dukkha separation from what is dear from the things we care about is dukkha not getting what we want not having it turn out the way we'd like the all the forms of clinging so this is part of the human realm, the first noble truth, and it is staring us in the face with climate change, um, and it's affecting our lives and the lives of the beings all around us. And we might say, well, this is the first time that terrible suffering is human cause, and the scale of it, of course, is something um, new and and, uh, devastating, but even from ancient times, from the Buddha's time, there's a lot of human-caused suffering, the continuing warfare between the Vajjians and the Kosalans and the Sakyans around the Buddha, and the and life expectancy, which was half of ours, and the illness and the slavery that was there. This is not a new story. Um, human beings can create heaven and tend one another and bring alive love and connectedness, and care, and wisdom, and awaken, and human beings also can contribute to dukkha, to the suffering that's part of the human realm. Um, And there's a a giant vision um, then that's offered of um, the role of the awakened heart and the awakened being, which we all are, nobly born, begin the text, Oh, you are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas. Remember who you really are. So you think you were born into this body as a separate being. Um, And from what Tara and Ruth are reminding us, when you begin to awaken, you awaken in the Bodhisattva body, the body of awakening together with all beings. And realize, oh, whether it's a year or a century or a 100,000 Mahakalpas, The Bodhisattva has only one way, the way of connection and compassion and care for all beings. Um, And what's beautiful about the vision of the Bodhisattva is it doesn't exclude suffering but instead the Bodhisattva appears together with suffering and is committed in the midst of the difficulty to find in our hearts that wisdom and nobility and dignity that brings light and connectedness and care and the end of suffering to beings. Not a small project. When you sit in a a Zen Do, begin Zen practice, you recite the four vows, starting with sentient beings, are numberless, boundless. I vow to save them all. Not a small thing. Um, Even if you look in your own family, they don't necessarily want to be saved by you, people around you, and yet at the same time, this is a vow of the Bodhisattva to, to tend to all beings or when the Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning and recites the vows from Shanti Davis Bodhisattva vision, may I be uh, a resting place for the weary, may I be medicine for the sick, may I be uh, food for the hungry, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge for those to cross Blood. may I be a lamp in the darkness may I, and, a, and a light of dharma and inspiration for beings as long as earth and sky exist, as long as beings exist, may I be born and work together with them to bring liberation. So we hear these bodhisattva vows and, and we realize that these are the instructions of navigating difficult times. And if you look at the life of um, the exemplars like Mahatma Gandhi, who lived in a time of tremendous difficulty of violence and colonial oppression and caste system and so forth, he took a day a week, no matter what was happening, bringing down the British Empire. said, I'm sorry, I know there's hundreds of thousands of people out marching. This is my quiet day once a week. I'm going to quiet my mind and listen in my heart to the action I can take that is most connected with all from the most skillful, dharmic, um, awakened place that we can do together to bring us together um, and to manifest change. As Martin Luther King did or Aung San Suu Kyi, who I was fortunate enough to meet with in Burma this, earlier this year, and she said, they never really have me in prison. There she was arrested for 17 years because I never hated them. And so we tend our heart, and then as a bodhisattva, we set the compass of our heart with our vows of long term dedication amidst joy and sorrow, amidst dukkha and sukha, amidst praise and blame and birth and death. The bodhisattva has only one way the way of compassion and the way of <clears throat> envisioning the service and connection with all of life one of my favorite examples of this is the <coughs> is the, the great um, Buddhist elder Ari Ratna of Sri Lanka who started the Sarvodia movement to connect villages across the country, more than half the villages in the country to dig wells and build schools and collaborate and make peace. And toward the end of the terrible Sri Lankan Civil War, he called all the members of Sarvodia together (coughs) to try to support the Norwegian peace plan. 650,000 people gathered together at the ancient temple at Anuradhapura, and Ari stood up. And he said, it's taken us 500 years to get into this difficulty. And the Buddhist teachings have us look at the causes of things and not just the effects. So if we look, there are 500 years of conflict between Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and 400 years of colonial oppression and 200 years of economic disparity between the rich, wet parts of the island and the poor, dry parts. So what I have to offer you <clears throat> is the Sarvodia 500-year peace plan. If it's taken us 500 years to get into this, here's the plan to exit. Uh, five years of uh, simply cease fire and 10 years of rebuilding roads and schools and 25 years of learning each other's languages and religions Um, and 50 years of working on an economic program to right the economic injustice and having the poor parts and the rich parts collaborate for everyone's well-being. And after 100 years, we'll have a grand council to see how we're doing and start all over again. And over 500 years, I think we can turn Sri Lanka into the island of peace and mercy and awakening that she was meant to be. And I heard these words and I almost wept. And, in fact, I got a chance to tell this story to the Dalai Lama, knowing he carries the sufferings of Tibet that's happened so much in the last 50 or 60 years on the weight of that in his heart and his shoulders. And he was grinning hearing this, hearing this long-term vision. Um, Thomas Merton explains it this way. He says, when you are doing the work, he wrote to an activist, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not at times bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so there's a kind of courage in the bodhisattva and a a vision that is vast, as vast as the earth and the galaxies that we are a part of Um, and as it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the secret is to act without attachment to the fruits of the actions and for us to trust the seeds that we plant that is given to each of us as part of as cells in the awakening organism of the earth to plant our seeds to contribute our peace no matter what is happening and as we Plant the seeds and contribute our peace. As Henry David Thoreau says, I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, but I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And so we plant our seeds not out of bitterness and not out of fear of confusion or confusion, but out of a sense of rightness and truth. And then something else happens when my dear friend Wes Nisker, another Darwin teacher, was interviewing Gary Snyder recently, Gary being one of the fathers of the American environmental movement for half a century, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, Earth household. He said, Gary, you're 84 years old. You see the climate disruption, the, the oceans rising, the loss of species. What advice do you have for us? At this time, where there's so much despair and worry and fear, and Gary looked back steadily and said, don't feel guilty. He said, (laughs) if you are going to save the earth, save it because you love it, not out of anger, not out of guilt, not out of fear. All those are are the source of what creates dukkha, greed and hatred and anger. If you save it, you must save it because you love it. And it's the love that took those monks out of their forest monasteries to wrap their robes around the, the greatest trees in the forest and ordained them as the abbots to save that part of the forest from being cut down and logged. It was the love that allowed my teacher and friend Mahagosananda after the Cambodian genocide where all 19 of his own family members were killed and his monastery burned for 15 years to walk through the killing fields and the War zones of Cambodia, step-by-step with hundreds of people behind him, leading them in the chant, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed, telling them that to return to the earth, to your village and your community, you can't ride a bus, you can't go back in in a truck, you have to walk step-by-step. And with each step, practice loving kindness and compassion and bring that back alive alive. On this earth, there is no other. Hmm? Am I? Is my time up?
0: Wonderful. We're pretty much right. there, but it, it, well, you just kind <clears throat> of said to finish. There is no other.
4: Yes. So this is our this is our work um, as a bodhisattva. This is our um, this is our time. Oh, nobly born, you were born for this. You were called to do this, and in doing this. You plant your seeds and you become part of the whole that is healing itself.
0: That's beautiful. It's so so wonderful to be reminded of the big vision and the inner orientation of setting our compass at the heart. And just as you were speaking about the Bodhisattva way, we will be, these conversations will be leading into the creation of an Eco-Sattva training online globally, cross-traditions, and uh, as things are moving fast on the ground, we'll be you know, seeking feedback for that for all participants, people involved in this, you know, this love of the earth so that we can continue to apply um, everything that's been said this morning by Tara Ruth and uh, Jack. Thank you so much for your fantastic words, and we can apply it in our lives more fully and bring it into action and response, skillful response. So um, thank you again so much. That is actually I feel my heart filling up, listening to these words. I feel I've been nourished and, um, and calmed and yet yeah, also energized. So it's a wonderful impact. So uh, right now, we're going to shift uh, into hearing uh, each other and going to move into breakout groups. We have 15 minutes for this. we'll be guided. Um, we're going to ask each of you, we're going to go into groups of four, and we're going to ask each of you to reflect, you'll have about three minutes each, and there will be markers, um, my voice will come in just to let you know when the three minutes is uh, up, just to reflect from what you've heard and where you are, how is it for you as we wake up into the reality of climate change and all that's implied, and what kinds of responses Are you with, you know, in terms of what you're thinking or maybe even things you're doing? It's not a long time, but three minutes can, can, a lot can happen for each of us. And I encourage that we're not responding to each other as you listen. You're just listening to each other. And then we're going to take whatever comes from the breakout groups into more dialogue, the last part, some questions and answers and dialogue, the last part of our call together. So I'm going to hand over to um, Maestro Conference Driver Joshua and Kristen to help us go into the breakout groups, right? We're going to come back to see, just touch into what you've been discussing and respond to some of that. But for now, I'm just going to actually pitch a couple of questions that came in through via email. So I'm going to just ask Tara. I think a couple of areas that are quite common that people ask about and are concerned about. So Tara, if I can ask you, um, how how do we actually deal with this feeling of righteous anger? That you know sometimes in Buddhism you shouldn't feel angry, or there's this kind of confusion around emotions, strong emotions in response to what's going on, outrage, anger. How best to use that energy or be in relationship to that energy?
2: Well, first, I'm really glad that question's out there because you're right. I mean, there's so much given in spiritual worlds about how taboo anger is, and we are rigged to feel anger. It's a, it's natural. It's a, it's an intelligent response to harm and violence and disease. So the bottom line is to actually that this is a a message, an intelligent message to respond to. Um, that, I mean, if, when I think of you know. or I think of the cruelty of factory farms. I mean, there's there's an outrage that comes up in me. And so the point isn't to get rid of that energy, but there's a shadow side, which is that when there's a story wrapped around with anger that there's a bad other, that there's bad guys out there doing bad Mm -hmm. things, it perpetuates separation. So that uh, the storyline actually will distance people and so the, the deal is we need to listen to the message and not get caught in the emotional trance of it and I want to give you one example that, of how we can do that which I found out when for me when we were about to go to war against Iraq and I was make definitely feeling bad other you know they, they are the bad ones, they're the violators, those in the administration that wanted to create this ripple of violence and I started doing this reflection when I'd read the newspaper and it would kind of trigger off my bad other feelings where I'd feel the anger and I'd say, okay, let's get rid of the storyline, just feel the energy. And I'd let the energy be as much as it was. And then I'd find that underneath it was fear. And I'd let that be as much as it was, really this practice we do of presence and being with. And I'd find that under the fear was this, when I let it be big, was this grieving for all the loss. And then I'd let that be big. And under that was care. And so then when I could then move from that place of caring about people, caring about the suffering, there was a group interfaith protest and we all got arrested. But the protest was not like a like a waving your fist angry protest. It was people with posters with with Iraqi children on them and American children and one child was at the process and she, she had a sign saying, don't bomb them, they are children over there and they hurt too. So so I think my point is not to get lost in the storyline of bad other, but to really be with the energy and find the love underneath that cares about our world.
0: Thank you. That's, that is so helpful. That is fantastic. Thank you. Really cool. Thank you. Um, uh, Ruth, if I can just... Um Bring you another question that just came in via email, and I think again this is a very archetypal question actually, and it's to do with the split between secular activism, you know, like those uh, the activists are out there, and then those that are so-called like spiritual quietism on the mat, in doing the inner work um, and Dharma practice that's usually about in personal transformation. How do we bring those together? What what way can they inform each other, or what do, what's your take on that?
3: Yeah, that's a great question as well. It, it, I've heard it termed as the, um, the, the 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 line between the monastic and the marketplace, and <laughs> how do we uh, bring our um, awareness to or, or balance these two uh, what appears to be um, polarities? But what I've found is that they're not so uh, separate. This act, this idea of activism and quietism, if you will. I, I, I actually see that our activism is, is actually an extension of our practice. Those of us that have a practice that are sitting with what Tara just offered around these intense emotions and the passions or the fire of the heart that gets lit up. Uh, we, we are uh, challenged with how we express our um, passions in the world from a place of practice and presence. And uh, one thing to keep in mind, I think, in moving from our cushions into out in the world, is is that we we have a practice of doing no harm. That that's just square in the in in our foreheads and in our mind. That's our mantra. That's playing all the time to do no harm. To to be present to do no harm. And an example of this that was real palpable for me was being in um, South Africa right around the time that uh, um, Nelson Mandela was uh, elected. And I uh, went around with a a number of people and uh, spoke with a number of the um, nonprofit organizations there. And I was real curious about how did you do this without just being enraged all the time? You know how did you fight apartheid you know, you know without being enraged all the time and the the message that i got from a number of people maybe not all of them but most of them was that the issue of apartheid was never about the person it was about the system and yeah. it was a matter of seeing that it was a system that needed to be dismantled it wasn't about hating the people and that really stuck with me to be able to see what needs to happen Bring our quiet practice to a sense of equanimity and presence, and a clear seeing and groundedness. You know, not the reactivity or the heat that sometimes we find in activism. It's really important. I I know that uh, growing up in the civil rights movement, I saw many people die on the vine from righteous rage and righteousness. And what I've found is that it's really nice to bring your heart into activism and to see the humanness um, and the, the heart and love that is in all people, even the ones that uh,
0: we have judgment about. Uh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And, again, such a brilliant answer. And I think it's lovely to hear about Madiba, Mr. Mandela, and I remember him saying to, um, to wish, you know, to hate your enemies is like drinking poison, hoping it will kill them. You know, it's poison. So it's, uh, this, again, this question of heart and how this is where the dharma can inform our response so well. So I'd like to um, open up now. You've had the, some breakout groups and questions and dialogue coming. So it'd be lovely to hear from our participants. If you have anything you'd like to share or say or ask about, please press 1 On your keypad and Kristen will help to negotiate this next piece. We have about just over 15 minutes left of our time together today. So Kristen over to you.
5: Okay great thanks everybody and um, it's just so great to be with all of you. I'm so grateful to all the teachers and to be able to do this work as a Sangha with you. So as uh, I said, "Please press one if you have any questions, and we'll uh, we'll take your your question now." So, Josh, do you want to choose? Well, look, I see some hands raising. This is great. So, Josh, you want to let me know who we're going to choose here?
6: Sure. Let's go over to Jeffrey.
5: Yeah, Jeffrey, you're going to be on the line. Go ahead.
6: Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, my question comes from the the last person that spoke about the the way that people in South Africa cope with apartheid by seeing it as the the system. So that's my concern: is how how much progress can we really make on working on climate change if we don't do something about the nature of our political system and the um, that it supports it the you know the, the massive amounts of power and money in in politics and the oil and gas industries and and just the basic structure of, uh, as, as seen by the Citizens United ruling about corporations just having way too much power. Um, I mean, I've decided myself to just sort of try to divide my time and work on both, but I'd be interested in what anybody else has to say about that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, so um, uh, Jack, do you have any response for that?
4: Well, the, there are two parts to the question. The, the personal part is, which should we tend to? Um, and I think we each have particular gifts. Some might have the gift of being a political organizer. Some might have the gift of, of systemic and systematic thinking, where you can really tend to and put your heart into getting money out of politics or working um, to change the way the corporate charters have created a, uh, a kind of rampant, Uh, freewheeling exploitation Um, and if you can do that great Um, others may be tying their robes around the trees or going to a preschool and uh, elementary school and middle school and educating the next generation so that they can act Um, I think the answer to that is all of the above and listening to your heart to see what it is that you particularly are drawn to contribute because we need all of those seeds Um, And then the underlying question, do we need to address the systemic nature? Absolutely. And there's an even deeper question, which you you allude to, and that is the world doesn't need more energy and it doesn't need more food and, and more things. It needs less greed and less hatred and less ignorance of the sense of separation, less delusion. So not only on that systemic level, but on the deepest Dharma level, a kind of education and awakening in ourselves, our community, and the community of humanity, um, that is the biggest systemic change of all. And I I see a lot of potential in, in the Internet that's um, connecting us and in wild changes that are happening that may actually aid us um, in this process.
0: Thank you. And if I could just embroider a little bit onto that and say... Through what's happening, as I said, the ground is moving very fast under our feet as we awaken into our reality and as people are mobilizing and organizing and by the end of these conversations and as we move forward together as a Dharma community, we will be offering connections and networks that we can align with, people of faith, people more in the activist communities, people on the front lines, organizations that have good strategies. So the main message, we're not alone, we're doing this together. Um, so, Christian, uh, over to you to take another question. Great, yes, yeah, that's wonderful.
5: Um, thank you, and uh, it's a great question. And now let's hear from Julia. Julia, what's your question? Well, I think Sanisaria
0: sort of touched on it just now. My question is, um, how can one Sangha facilitate us being able to put also good news about initiatives that are happening across the world so that we can actually gain some inspiration and heart that there is movement. Yes, yes, a, there is a lot of fantastic things happening. I wonder if actually Lou, if you're there, if you've got some good news for us. <laughs> Lou, you stood on the call? Okay, so um, while, while, while we find Lou, um, one of the teachers, would you like to respond to that? Any any um, positive actions that your movement that you're seeing happening in response to our times?
3: Tara, well, would you
0: like to? Oh, Jack, please go ahead.
4: I just want to say this is not um, the current climate news, but there's a, a, a really fine book called The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. A a philosopher, anthropologist at Harvard, where he charts several hundred years of the human history and shows the, the gradual reduction in slavery, even though there's still people enslaved, the better treatment of children, the gradual freedom for women, even though it's still bad in parts of the world, the gradual reduction in warfare. Um, and if you look at if you need heart, in the possibility of humans becoming more conscious. I really recommend this. It gives you the sense that you're part of this great movement of awakening that actually is happening.
0: Yes. I, I, think, I think also as, as there's more a sense of a big movement and shift happening to mobilize, we're going to see a lot of creativity work coming out, like Naomi Klein's latest book – this Changes Everything It's Something We Should All Be Reading, which also is very realistic, but has a positive take. The work of Bill McKibben, 350.org, I Don't Know More, which is a mobilization of First Nation peoples. Some of these movements are very good to connect up with. Uh, so we have about 10 minutes or so. Would, can we take another question?
5: Yeah, great. Um, so how about let's go to Louise. Louise, what's
6: so, your question? Well, that's interesting. My, my phone is starting to beep. <laughs> but, uh, Mike, I had two uh, suggestions uh, in response to the last couple of questions. One is about systemic. That Joanna Macy also talks about um, another level, which is the consciousness behind the system. So that's another level that we can work on in changing consciousness. We do, uh, that does translate into eventually changing systems. And then as far as good news... Um,
0: Sorry, I lost
5: you there, the good news. We don't get to hear the good news, y'all. Oh, well. I'm sure we can all look around and see. Plenty of good news, but we didn't get to hear Louise's version of good news. All right, so it looks like we'll have time for one more. Uh how about uh Rom? Rom Eisenberg? Can what do you what's your question, Rom? Rom, you sorry, may need
6: sorry. to unmute your headset or your handset.
0: Okay.
6: How about we
5: go over to Stephanie? Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, yeah. we can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I had a really interesting experience a couple weeks ago. I live in Houston, which we call the Petro Metro. Um, so it's it's really you know one of the big centers of the fossil fuel industry. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I um, Um, went to a um, conference on climate and energy put on by a group called the Heritage Foundation, which um, you may be aware of is a pretty conservative uh, think tank that is certainly um, trying to bolster the case of continued fossil fuel use. And um, um, uh, One of the speakers there um, gave a presentation about his visit to the People's Climate March and um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this exactly because... Um, oh, it's okay. Yeah, just go ahead and give us your question. <laughs> we don't have a, a whole lot of time left, so just tell us what's the heart of it for you. What's, your, what's, what's the question that's deep in, in your heart? Yeah, well, um, when, when they were presenting, um, they, they, this man started off with a picture of Buddhists meditating before the march, saying, oh my gosh, look at these crazy people. And um, you know, of course, being a Buddhist, I took that pretty, pretty deeply, and all these questions about anger. But uh, you know, that's certainly arising for me. But I also, you know, how I, I think this may be something that will come up more and more that um, people of non—I um, I don't know—I feel like there there may be some targeting of of. Groups of people, as have you know, happened in the past, and uh, how can we work with this to make it a strength for um, for this movement?
0: You know, I'm just I'm just going to uh, sort of come in here because um, we we have a few minutes left and we have a few things to do to wrap up. I think if it's okay, I think this is a really good question, and I think the wonderful thing to know is that we have time throughout this whole month to continue exploring and um, deepening into these kinds of questions that have just been brought to us together. So uh, at the moment, uh, unless anyone's got just a few sentences from the teacher to respond, I think we'll move into the wrap-up.
4: I think that it's okay that we're targeted. I think it's it's as Martin Luther King spoke about, sometimes you actually need to bring out the toxins and bring out the poisons so that they can be addressed with compassion in a very direct way. And there's some part of justice that there are to be touched in every being, although it's some of them it's still deeply covered over. So I'm not worried about that. I think that that is actually part of the movement that eventually will bring us together.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> That's great. So again, thank you so much, everyone. We're going to start the wrap-up now for the last few minutes of our call together. And again, I can't tell you how much I appreciate, we all appreciate your presence, giving your time, because we know that those on the call and those that will be listening to the recordings, we know that this is just the tip of the iceberg to our deep sense of care and concern and challenge that we're in. But it's so helpful to know that we're here together as we're on the same page and looking together how to embody this bodhicitta bodhisattva energy and how to find the most authentic, realistic, and powerful responses that we can. So next Sunday, please do join us again at the same time. We're going to be hearing from Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Aya Ananda Bodhi Bhikkhuni, and Susie Harrington, three great practitioners and teachers I have a, a lot to further our discussion with, so please tune in to that. And as I mentioned, all of this is going to be feeding into the development of an EcoSATFA training, which will be launched next year. And I also want to say that One Earth Sangha is a new initiative. Uh, everyone working on One Earth Sangha is offering their time on a volunteer basis. We'd like to embody and get One Earth Sangha more uh, grounded and rooted. And for that, we do value support in all manner of ways, but also particularly any dana uh, and financial offerings that can be given um, on the website will go directly to ensuring that, uh, that this great initiative actually becomes a movement in and of itself that can be a platform for all of us to orientate and find our home within as we negotiate the times ahead. And I'd also like to invite Josh, who this Maestro Conference has been so generous in offering the platform uh, freely as donor to host our calls. Um, Josh, do you have a, a, a few words to say about Maestro?
6: Yes, thank you. Uh, My name is Joshua Edwards and I'm with Maestro Conference and we're so honored and excited to support the Mindfulness and Climate Action Initiative here with the technology that you're using today. And if you would like more information about Maestro Conference, either for hosting your own events or for information about our other uh, upcoming world-changing conversations, would you please dial the number 1 on your telephone keypad now or your Skype dial pad, uh, your computer keyboard. Uh, and we'd love to just send you some more information about how you can just be involved in turning um, the presentations into conversations. So we're so glad to be here uh, with you all today. And um, you can certainly stay on and continue to connect together in small groups uh, after the formal part of the call is complete. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Joshua. And just to mention, you can continue to email us And One Earth Sangha. We're going to be setting up a Facebook group where we can continue the conversation. You'll hear about that. So, you know, as in the Dharma, the way of the Dharma, this has been wonderful to draw this energy together. And I'd like to invite Ruth, if you would, as we finish, um, as is in our tradition, to share the blessings and the good karma and the good energy and the prayerfulness from our gathering for the welfare of our earth and our planet. So please, Ruth, over to you to to finish off. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, and thanks to all of the good hearts that um, are collected here. And let me invite you just to take a breath or two, right here and now. And to feel the aliveness of our sharing together, and to know that we are a Sankha. And may we envision our service to life. May we tend to our heart. May we set our compass to compassion, connection, and care. May we plant our seeds and contribute to peace. And may we be a part of the home, our earth, that is healing itself for the benefit of all sentient beings. May I practice, may our practice be of service to all beings in all directions without
0: exception. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, and uh, stay well, go well, until next week.
6: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org